Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Carrie Shale. But she's our special guest, singer and songwriter, Catherine Williams. My love, she speaks like silence, without ideas or violence. She doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. People carry roses, make promises by the hours. My love, she laughs like the flowers. Valentine's can't buy her. Ah, beautiful. Mm. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. Um, any particular reason you chose that to begin the uh, the show? Um, it was one of the songs that I. It was the last verse, actually, the, the my love, she's like some raven at my window with a broken wing, and, and it was the first sort of connections I made in the, uh, like, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, where I just had something to aim towards that I really wanted to get that good, um, mm. and, uh, yeah, and I used to find myself humming it a lot as a teenager. <laughs> so you were a teenager when you first heard that, that particular song? Yeah, well, I sort of, um, my... My mum and dad had a record player and um, my gran gave me her dance set. And when I was a teenager, I put the tees made that was hers and the dance set in my room and thought that that was me, independent living, yeah. at my mum and dad's <laughs> <laughs> so, and, um, You have a rich fantasy life. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, um, yeah, so I, I used to listen to a lot of their stuff. So um, my dad had Dylan and... Um, like Van Morrison and mm. like Carol King and my mum was cut sort of into Dr. Hook and Janis Joplin and my gran had like strange stuff comparatively like um like Lonnie Donegan and uh, Nina Simone and Great. Yeah. Good musical so, taste in that so, family. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was a kind of big it was sort of a big friend for me. I went to a a, a secondary school which was quite rough. I didn't feel like I belonged. Um, you know, I wasn't really into football, and I wasn't didn't really feel like one of the girl girls. So I used to. Um, I my dad had these big. Um, I don't know why I'm doing this with my hands because we're in a podcast. <laughs> what are you doing they with your like hands? Big, are those melons um, that you're describing? I don't know what you're big doing. headphones. Oh, big headphones. Sorry. Yeah, they could be anything. <laughs> I'm grabbing them hard. <laughs> so the, these big brown headphones with um with a with a coil and I used to put um, Janis Joplin's album Pearl and there was a song called Cry Baby and I yeah. used to uh, I used to listen to that every morning before I walked to school to give me the courage to go to school wow so it was a big um, it was a big way of and, and yeah so so kind of Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, all of those sort of people, Joni Mitchell, that were kind of my friends, really. Was it because Janis Joplin had such a strong voice? Because yeah, I'm doing the same thing, I'm doing the melons thing. Because uh, um, Cry Baby is... Uh, I don't know what it was. Sometimes you have those songs that, you know, you could you get all intellectual about something, mm, mm. but um, sometimes a song hooks to you and you're not quite sure why. I think it was because she was an outsider and I felt like an outsider, and there was a raw passion there. 
What interests me, though, is, I mean, just having done a little bit of research on this, according to the internet, we're roughly the same age, give or take a couple of years. And that means you were a teenager in the 80s. Yeah, well, my elder sister had um, posters on the wall of, like, uh, Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet, yeah. and she was a big Adamant fan, and she had, like, scary Poirot... Uh, what are those dolls? Um, Piero. Piero yeah. dolls. Yes. That, that was a very big 80s thing. It scared mm. the hell out of me. And yet you're listening to Janis Joplin, Alana Cohen and Bob Dylan in the headphones. This is what interests me. You see. Yeah. Well, it's... actually, it, there is something kind of spooky about it because I bought my first record was Teaser and the Firecat by Cat Stevens. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you know the back of that. It's like a real, really close picture of him with a big beard. Mm. So... Um, I was I I used to have him next to my bed. <laughs> I bought it from like a a tabletop sale and uh yeah, so I used she was like kissing Duran Duran at night and I was kissing a beardy cat Stevens <laughs> at the age of twelve, so I don't know how that <laughs> did you have any friends that you discussed, for example, Love Minus Zero No Limit with, or was it just your private thing in your head that you used to get you through the day? Um well Great auntie gay. <laughs> My great auntie gay. Let's start from the beginning. She uh, left me her car, which was a Triumph Dolomite, a yellow Triumph Dolomite, and it only had a cassette player. So I went and bought um, a few cassettes, and one of them was Best of Bob Dylan, um, which is like the front cover of him with um, a hat on. I don't know, it was yeah. like a mm -hmm. strange tape. Okay. And... Uh, so I had like about six, seven tapes in rotation and then as I started to get boyfriends who would make me tapes, mm. like that mm. became my way. So I would take the car to where I lived, where I was brought up in Liverpool. I live in Newcastle now. And I would go to a place called the Britannia Inn, which was a pub, and not go in it, but park where you could look at the Mersey because I thought I was some sort of artist. And then, <laughs> uh, and I would... I would sketch and listen to music in the car on my own with a flask and then at mm. like half, half ten go home again <laughs> just laughing at like the wild life I led. <laughs> um, so, so I sort of got into it that way and then uh, there was a place called Quiggins which is kind of like an Affleck Palace alternative place in Liverpool. I used to go there with my sister and I'd start buying vinyl mm. and that's when I started to buy the albums. The Bob Dylan albums and listen to them. Did you work backwards? I mean, you know, this was the eighties, so not his best <clears throat> oh, God. period. No, critically, anyway. No, I bought quite a few of his eighties albums in Preston when my sister, who was older, went to university, and I would go and visit her, um, and I'd go to the like charity shops and buy. And I bought a couple of them. Like the one, the sort of Christian-y, 80, I can't mm -hmm. remember what it's called. <clears throat> slow Train Coming, Saved, Shot of Love, one of those? Yeah, I think it was definitely Slow Train Coming. Mm. And um, and it broke my heart <laughs> because I had all the other ones. Um, I mean, there is good songs on there as well, but like... Mm. So, yeah, I bought the early ones at Quiggins yeah. and mm. got massively into his early stuff and I was doing a... I was doing a art foundation um, course in Liverpool, um, just just off Pilgrim Street, um, and there was a pub called the Pilgrim that I worked in in the mornings so that I could sort of pay my way. It's an amazing place, and uh, you go downstairs and it was kind of rough, and it had tables, and on the tables they had these square um, jukeboxes, mm -hmm. which um, had. 
you could choose, you could flip. They were, oh, yeah, I know they those. flipped I absolutely them. Know Do you know those ones? And, those, they, yeah. and they were drawn like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and you were allowed to put like five, six things on in the morning when I would clean in there. Mm. And um, I used to put on uh, Doris Day, Kesara, because I just thought it was yeah. so brilliant that that was in a jukebox. Yeah. And then Lay Lady Lay, Bob Dylan. So that was a massive sort of daily song for me, and I, I listened to that every time. I worked at the Pilgrim. It's a good way in. I mean, we've talked probably too much on this podcast about how Nashville Skyline was both mine and Kerry's way into Dylan. It's so yeah. accessible. Yeah. Even my wife said to me over the weekend, she said, you know, don't put any Bob Dylan on. Or, you can put that Lay 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 on one if you like. I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like a completely different person as well, yeah, that, yeah. that album. It's like kind of croony and bit bit saucy, bit sexy, like bit like whispering your ear lying on the pillow. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great way to get into to Dylan. I, I, I won't go on about why. It's 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 still probably my no, favorite. No, but there is, you're right about the, the sauciness, because I've been listening to that song for my, all my life that I can remember. And it makes you undress. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard the Isaac Hayes version? Have you heard it? No. Oh, it's, it's, oh, you can sort of imagine it. I mean, he takes it and it's just raw, raw. Sex. It's just wow. it goes on for like eight minutes or something. It's just, hey baby, I wanna. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there, it's, it's, it's in there. I mean, it starts with lay across my big brass bed, and then the line that jumped out at me about three years ago, and I, I'd never really twigged before, was I long to reach for you in the night. It's impossibly romantic and kind of sexual as well. I'd, and it, it, I'd never, it never hit me before. And the longing is important as well. I was watching, um, it's a repeat because it's made a few years ago, but that thing Rock and Roll America on BBC, which is narrated by David Morrissey, actually. And, and I was watching that. And P.F. Sloan was talking about the Everly Brothers. And he was saying when he first heard All I Have to Do is Dream in 1958... He said it just grabbed him, and someone else said the same thing, that it grabbed teenagers, because teenagers didn't know what love was, but they knew what yearning was. Mm. They knew what longing was. They couldn't define it, but they heard it in this song, and I'm guessing something similar happened with you and Lady Lady Lay, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and it was a, it was a, a sort of awakening into, um, into the adult world, you know. I, I was still living at home, but I was getting the bus into town. I was hanging out with people who'd come on the foundation from Ireland or Scotland or other cities. And it was... Um, and you, and when you do... I did an art foundation, then went to Newcastle and did an art degree. And I kind of think really what I was doing was a music degree because you get there at nine <laughs> and you put your headphones on and then you paint on canvas till like nine at night and you're listening to music that whole time, yeah. thinking, working, listening. And then you'd, people would pass tapes around, so I got massively into the Velvet Underground and, like, in the fall. And, you know, just, like, broadened my whole music landscape, really, mm. and had the time. Had, like, four years of, of, of listening to music on headphones while doing a degree, which is not... It's not something that you really think about when you're going to do an art degree. but um, And it sort of defined who I was and, like, I was really into that sort of 60s, 70s thing and then so I started to wear the, like, brown suede coat and the battered jeans mm. and, and thinking, oh, you know, maybe I could be his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> or something like, you know, I'm thinking back as, like, 17. Yeah, sure. You know, and, like, I, I did idolise him. It's, it sort of slips slightly, you know, as you get older. I mean, I used to listen to The Doors then as well, and, yeah. and there would be, like, 
you know, Jim Morrison and all of that. And now I think um, The Doors are a great band, but I could completely leave Jim Morrison behind, you know. I sort yeah. of go the other way now. That yeah. I know he's a good frontman, but the band's better. <laughs> yeah. It just fascinates me that a lot of people say, you know, the music you hear in your teens is what defines you. And they often say, oh, well, that's my kind of music because I was a teenager in the mid-80s or whatever. But it omits to, to mention the fact that it doesn't matter where the music is from. It doesn't have to be that era. And in fact, there's something so solitary about being a teenager that it's almost better, I think, to have something that's a little bit earlier. Because it's yours, you know, and you can, exactly, you can have that fancy of dressing like Carol King on the cover of Tapestry or Joni Mitchell or whatever and think I'm going to be this, even though it's 1980-something, you know, because yeah. it's your own private arena, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's, it's like finding that identity for yourself. Mm. Um, I think that... Uh, Part of uh, it's it's funny because now I'm I'm in this strange sort of gap in my own career where um, like the British folk world are very very assured and definite that in no way am I a folk artist. Yeah. And um, but the pop world all say folk artist Catherine Williams, and I'm this strange thing in between. But I think the the thing is, is that what I am is someone who learnt how to write songs and was interested in the American singer-songwriter and then yeah. flipping into the British singer-songwriter. But all that Paul Simon, mm. you know, I just... Um, I never did traditional folk and I don't do traditional folk, no. but I am a folk artist if the folk word means singer songwriter acoustic guitar and also and i'm not being difficult but it's music made by folk or music made in a country you know the, these labels are, are, are so constricting after a while i think and it's it's just music you know it's like i mean you know any any like you said something that's infused by a sense of americanness or something i mean the word americana I think has only been around for about 20 years, but the music sure as hell existed before then. It's just, it didn't have a label. You know, they yeah. didn't call well, the not, band Americana. I'm not that either. <laughs> and no. I don't sing in no, an American no. accent. So it's exactly. like, I don't, I'm not trying to be that, but what I take from it is like that kind of, um, I just love that sort of poetic uh, sensibility of lyrics searching for something mm. and you getting more than just... Um, I mean, I write a lot of pop as well, but I, I, I get so involved in, like, what you were saying about the opening out of a lyric that you think is maybe simple. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I never want to be clever. And I don't think... Uh, Dylan's, like, he does... He, he he knows he's clever, but it's not always about that. The beauty of these sort... Like, Dylan and Cohen is that they can explain something complex in sim simple terms... And beyond that, the it's how they make truth ring, you know, mm. and I'm always trying to do that. I've just been doing um, tutoring on a songwriting course the last two days and mm. hot-footed it here, why I'm a bit sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when I talk to the people, I'm like, you need to go out and write from you, 
you know, there has to. It doesn't mean that you have to be autobiographical. I mean, that sort of thing drives me mad as a female singer-songwriter. They think that basically, I just get my diary, slap that against some chords, and that's me, and everything in my songs is what I've written. It really. Do you think boils that you get piss. more of that as, as a woman than than a, than oh, a man would? Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Why? Why is that? I don't understand um, why that should well, be. Well. Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the confessional female singer-songwriter. Mm. And when I did the book with Laura Barnett, where I was her character in yeah. the book writing yeah. for that, yeah. that, um, you know, I can see how that works. And obviously, everything I write has an autobiographical sense because it's me thinking it and coming out. Mm. But... Um, the idea that I don't have imagination. And well, there are some, it must be said, male and female singer-songwriters who, younger ones, who just don't, who do use their personal life. I remember I saw a support act once at uh, the um, Royal Festival Hall, and she sang like three songs, and the first one was about a boyfriend that she wanted, and the second one was about not getting on the volleyball team. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> and we left at, at, after the first few chords of the third, and my wife uh, muttered darkly, as we, were, we just went out to the foyer until she was finished, uh, that Joni Mitchell had a lot to answer for. My, my wife was wrong in that case because Joni Mitchell, you know, she, she goes right way, way beyond that. But you can yeah. see how some people can take that sort of thing the wrong way. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, people would listen to Joni and, or, or like, you know, Carol King, and it's like sometimes that the idea of that female song, songwriter at a piano like yearning heartfelt mm. thing it has to have more you know it's got it if i'm going to write a song i want it to be i want it to unfold for people you know i want it to have pictures that appear in their mind mm. and carry mm. me forward and that's what dylan and cohen and and joni they they're my they're my little angels that go come on do better all the time. So I mean, certainly Joni was slagged off uh, mercilessly uh, by certain magazines. I'm reading the biography of Jan Wenner, the editor of Rolling Stone. Oh yeah. At the moment, God, it's 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 put me off Rolling Stone entirely, which I, I grew up reading. But I realized that he he didn't like women, and he didn't like sexual women, and he didn't like Joni Mitchell because she was a very talented sexual woman, and so he yeah. slagged her off. And you know, there was this famous chart of the men that she'd slept with. That he published in Rolling Stone. It was it was it was misogynistic and uh, and and ugly. And I guess there's still a lot of that going on. She was also yeah. a painter, and she wanted, I believe, um, to design her own album cover very early on. And the record company just said, "No way." She said, "Well, look, I'm a painter. I I, I paint. This is what I'd like to do." And they said, "Forget it. End of story. <laughs> you know, you're not doing that." But she did manage to. I think, so she, I, I think she changed labels and did it. Yeah. yeah well, I did. think didn't Morning, her very first Morning one. Morgantown, that uh, one. Oh, she did, she's done all her. Yeah. She's done. Yeah. I think all, in, including, I think the first one. So yeah, she must it's have the drawings. Yeah. yeah. The colour did. Yeah. I think she. Yeah. I think she told them to to shove it and got herself a, a different record company. Yeah. No, well, was, I I did my first cover is my painting. And uh, oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Dog Leap Stairs. But then I set up my own record label to mm. do that. <laughs> very simple. Very, 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 yeah. So, so Janice and Joni, and uh, are there any other female uh, writers that you, singer, songwriters that you? Well, Carol King was mm. a big one. Mm. Um, I don't know. Could, uh, Joan Byers was in my grand's record collections, mm. and it took me ages to get into her because of her voice. I found. Yeah. 
um, piercing like mm. yeah. I know people say that about Joni but I've never had that because her writing is so high mm. so mm. up there no I agree There's, that, that corrosive vibrato is not in Joni Mitchell it is in Joan Byers I've got I have trouble with Joan Byers yeah I think we all have trouble <laughs> yeah. but now think, she's yeah. older and that voice is yeah lowered. she's lost, it's an yeah. octave lower it's, now. it's, it's beautiful yeah, yeah. I am um, I met her backstage at a, um, a festival once. She was washing her feet in the uh, in the sink, and then um, I just <laughs> I just took a moment. Yeah. Thought mm, this is a beautiful moment. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, speaking of of covers, uh, or at least of other people's songs, uh, you did a cover album um, some years ago, yeah. and uh, we were discussing this. We noticed that you didn't cover any Bob Aside, yeah. Yeah. unless so, you count the Ballad of Easy Rider which is which is really Roger McGuinn yeah. isn't it yeah. so yeah mm. what, why I know I, well it's funny because that album doesn't really represent my favourite artists and my uh, you know it's not like a sort of ego fest of like guess who I love yeah. you know it's got mm. the Bee Gees Ivor Cutler Nirvana it's, it's a really strange group of songs and I made that record after touring with an artist who I won't mention who was really mean to me and I had a bit of a breakdown. So I, I decided I would leave music and I asked all my friends to come around with their favourite records and we'd just sit around. It was about six, eight months of doing that and then I thought, I'm going to sit with the band and work out some songs. And you have your favourite song, like a Dylan song or this or that, and it's like, well, what can I do to change it? Hmm. And 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 I sort of what I'd do is I'd write the song down in my own handwriting first to have that feeling of what it would be like to have written the song, and then I take it apart and sort of feel a bit like a watchmaker kind of thing, Mm -hmm. like pulling it all apart, clean it up, and then work out how I'd put it back together. And so the songs came just from ones that I felt like I could do something new with. So a Bee Gees and a Nirvana was mm. like, oh, yeah, I can see how this could be mine. Mm. So it wasn't a... It wasn't um, and You know, I think men, people often do cover albums. It's it's like, this is my favourite song and here's mm. me singing it. Mm-hmm. It was a different kind of um, reason yeah, behind that's it. that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if you were to cover any Dylan songs, or, or just which Dylan songs do you think might speak to you well, I mean, I bet you get everyone. Um, everyone talks about uh, "Blood on the Tracks" as their favourite record, right? This is true. Yeah. Yes, and, um, true, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and 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 a lovely photographer I know called Tom Sheehan, who has photographed Dylan and Leonard Cohen and everything. Mm-hmm. He sent me a "Blood on the Tapes," which was the sort of outtakes, the other versions. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I really love that as well. I mean. It's, it's, it's difficult. The first song I sang um, was uh, of his. I learnt on guitar the finger picking style of um, "Don't Think Twice," mm-hmm. and I love that. Um, yeah. All the all the sort of simple <clears throat> early ones I really I really like. Mm. And do you still follow him? I mean, do you have the Great American Songbook um, CDs? The, the latest stuff, you know, triplicate. The, triplicate. <laughs> the, no, <clears throat> I went to see him and um, Van Morrison years ago in mm. Newcastle, and um, and I was really disappointed. 
by him or Van or both or either? Kind of both. I was like massive Astral Weeks fan. Mm. Uh, it's like one of my all-time favourite things. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, I just felt it had gone all a bit sort of blues, self-indulgence, and it sort of did my head <laughs> Did my yeah. head in it really upset me um, I really I got back into him when he started to do the radio show mm -hmm. and like listening to what he listened to and that was really nice hearing his voice and stuff and mm -hmm. um, uh, what was that great album with that really long song on Time Out of Mind yeah, yeah. that's a great mm -hmm. well I was thinking about this but, you know again because we're roughly the same age um, when I hit my early 20s and, and I guess you did too we thought, is he washed up? Has he got writer's block? He didn't write a song for, for seven years. And I thought, is this the worst time in his career to be a Bob Dylan fan? And then Time Out of Mind came along, and I mm. thought, oh, okay. Yeah, As, and that was a know. relief. Uh, it's yeah. funny, because uh, when I was doing the, um, the Flame launch, the yeah. Leonard Cohen thing, British Library, yeah. so there was me... Will Gombert's, um a writer, Polly Sampson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they had a video link to the man who got him back on the road, his live agent, Lenico's live agent. Yeah, right. And he, there was a question from the audience to them, and um, he got asked uh, the question, "What did, what did Dylan think of? Uh, what did Cowan think of Dylan?" Mm. And um, this man was saying that the. They were playing in Chicago. Um, Dylan was playing the same venue the night before, and they'd got there a day early. And Leonard Cohen said, um, "Let's go to this," you know. So they got a box and stuff, and um, they went to <clears throat> the gig. And Dylan started playing, and he was like, uh, he was like, back to the audience, piano, mm -hmm. like not playing the songs. Yeah the way people wanted to hear them mm. and um, then I think they stayed for three songs and then and then Leonard Cohen said let's go so he left mm. so I, I kind of it's hard because I think you have to separate um, it's a really it's a, I always find this a real dichotomy of like uh, artist what they produce, what that means to you, and what they are as a person. Mm. And it's such a complex issue that, yeah. like, you know, I've had friends who have toured and supported Bob Dylan and stories like that. And, and it's sort of meeting your heroes and things. Like when I worked with John Martin, he was lovely to me, but I know that... I know that he held knives to other people and he wasn't that nice to other women. But mm. it's just it's just such a really difficult thing and mm. does that taint all of those years where he was my he was my companion mm -hmm. through years of sitting in a car and drawing or my companion while I was painting with headphones mm. on. I mean he's so formative to me, like that mm. it's a difficult one to then mm. But then people don't stay in that moment. You know, you look at someone like Donovan, mm. and he is kind of still... Yeah, he's still an old hippie, isn't he? He's, he it's almost like those, um, you know, those blokes who still have their hair slicked back, you know, teddy yeah. boys. Yeah. It's like he's stuck in that teddy boy way. So, but Dylan hasn't done that, and, mm. it, you know, people are allowed to move and change through their own lives mm. and become mm. something else. But I just don't know what 
what that means for him, you know, and like if you go and see him now, what mm. are you going to see? Because you won't be getting to see these early albums. Yeah. No. I mean, presumably as a performing artist and writer yourself, you, I mean, people like us who are on the outside, like I've read tons of Bob Dylan books. Mm. Uh, do you have any desire to read, or have you read Chronicles or, or other, yeah. have you read biographies of Dylan, or do you tend to avoid those? Or I get given a lot of things like that, <laughs> and I do read them, yeah. Um, I'm not a big. I don't. I don't read loads of that sort of things. I tend mm. to do if I'm going to read stuff. I'll read what, like their poems or their lyrics mm. or, like if it's Cohen, I'd, I'd read you know Beautiful Losers or something, mm. something mm. that they've written in a different way. And I, I, I do find lives of people in the same kind of world, but, like, you know, stratospheric and I'm tiny. But um, I find that interesting to a point, but I also get kind of... Um, I get kind of annoyed of the sort of idolising of and and um, and sort of highlighting of clichés of what it is to be in music mm. Um, mm. and that sort of drives me mad I feel like that with Joni when you're talking about how she was similar to Sylvia Plath in the way that she was this beautiful woman and her private life and the fact that she was beautiful seems to be her legacy rather than the amazing stuff she wrote mm -hmm. and both of them wrote really strong muscular mm. like prose mm. and strong muscular like works of art mm. but no they're blonde they're beautiful and they had and these are the men they slept with and mm. just sort of really boring yeah it is boring <laughs> but um let me tell you who i slept with there's still there's still this awful misogyny i went to a, a record fair in in suffolk over the weekend I was sort of flicking through Stop it. Stop bragging. No, well, it's just... We're it's wild in this show, Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> rock and about roll. Us, yeah. And they, you know, I was flicking through the, through the vinyls thinking, am I going to spend 20 quid on something I'm not going to really play? And there was, you know, there was folk and there was country and there was rock and roll and there was 80s and there was female. <laughs> you kidding? No, I'm not. And, I, and in female, you had Joni Mitchell, <laughs> Brenda Lee, Tanita Tickerham, you know, all of them thrown in there. I just thought... And me and my friend were saying, let's go back in there and say, excuse me, I'm looking for white male music, please. Do you have any white men? And that sort of style. <laughs> we bottled out, but it astonished me. I don't know, it, was, it wasn't exactly, you know, it was the middle of nowhere, but still. Do you have any uh, Dylan songs that, that have changed for you over the years? Like 10, 15, 20 years later, you thought, that's not what that was about at all, or there's an added dimension to it. Um, yes, it's... it's uh it is strange listening back to songs, because I did that when I knew I was coming on this, mm. listening back to mm. records that um, that maybe I haven't listened to in a couple of years and just feeling how different they are, but then also the same. And noticing what's changed in my life. I mm. when I When I listen to Dylan or those people who are like my foundations, I always have my eyes closed thinking about that needle on the record lying on a bed in my bed sit and you know the sun streaming in and and it's got room to breathe and you sort of immerse yourself in that music and and I miss that 
in my life, in my busy life, mm. that um, it's actually it is a way to get back. When I reread my lyrics, um, I think I've written a different word than I have. Um, mm. With with Dylan, there's often uh, mishear. You, you can mishear something, and it means just as much to you. Yeah. Split up on the docks that night, or split up on a dark, sad night. You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure that's why he writes. Yeah. He writes them like that yeah. to be misheard. To well, be one of my favorite lines of mine is um, uh, "imaginings unset." And um, but I'd written imagining sunsets, mm. but then I'd sort of pulled them together, and then when I reread it, it said imaginings unset, and I just love the idea of not quite like a jelly formed imagining that's not quite there. Imaginings unset, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's also quite Dylan esque. The notion that you write down a lyric that can still change, you know, that's not the definitive version. It's still you might come back to it and you might have changed and it might have changed as well. You know? Well, that's about as Dylan as you can get. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just so. did um, the, this Folkestone songwriting thing that I did with three other artists and one of them was this bloke, um, Dave Hook, who's in a band called Solar Eye and he's a Glaswegian hip-hop rapper and he just blew my mind and watching him talk in the in the sessions about how he writes and then has another scratch page which is about this and then he has another scratch page which is about this and he takes things out from from what he's first writes in a song and then works highlights all the internal rhymes mm. puts the rhymes into this side and and it's just like seeing him work i was like oh my god i bet that's how dylan does it mm. and i and we talked saying that I reckon if Dylan was around now, he'd probably be a Glaswegian hip-hop artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he went through his Glaswegian hip-hop artist phase, I think, didn't he? No, because there, there was a time when the, the words were like just like, were like popcorn, weren't they? They were yeah. just bouncing all... What about the bit where he got jealous of uh, Neil Diamond? And then started wearing like leather and eye makeup. The only thing I've ever heard about <laughs> is that when you think it was. The only thing I've ever heard about Neil was. Diamond was at the last waltz when yeah, Neil Diamond story. came off stage at the last waltz <laughs> in so, what, November '76 at Winterland in San Francisco, and he came off. He'd just done "Dry Your Eyes," which was a song that you know he and Robbie Robertson had put on his his most recent album, and he came it's off that and by just the streets. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he came off and he said, oh, I was, I was so great. You know, you're going to have to go some distance to, to do better than that. He said that to Bob. Uh, to right? Bob Dylan waiting in the wings. And Dylan just said, what do you want me to do? Go out there and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was more rivalry aside from that between the two, then that would explain it. But are you, you're talking about when he started wearing uh, leathers and um, earrings and yeah. Uh, yeah. being Pir a rock star. Piratey, yeah. Yeah, the pirate years. The pirate years. <laughs> But, you know, it's funny because I did the Flower in London uh, festival just after the Mercury Prize thing when mm. I was asked to do big events. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well. and so I, I'd i been on one the main stage earlier on and we got to stand at the side and watch Bob Dylan play um, side of stage and it was amazing. And we were going back to our... The backstage rooms were like these sort of marquees they were set out and there was... Um, it was Rolling Stones, guitarist, who was it? Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood. I think it might have been Ronnie Wood. Mm. Anyway, um, they were coming out after the thing and we were sort of walking along. They were going faster to their... 
bit. And it was really nice because he just turned to Dylan and went, was was it OK? Was I OK? Uh, <laughs> do you think, was it was it OK? I'm sorry I messed up, da, da, da. And I was like, oh, man, that is just such a lovely moment because yeah. it's exactly yeah. what we do when we get off stage. And I was like, it's still that. It's still kids thinking, did I do good? Mm. You know? It was a really nice moment. Yeah. It's reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. I'm afraid we're going to have to knock it on the head because we have to leave the studio. Oh, God, did I say anything good? <laughs> you said lots good. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. I didn't even talk about all the albums. Uh... Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan, is recorded in the Alberta suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. I stood unwound beneath the skies and clouds, unbound by laws, the cry in rain like a trumpet sang, and asked for no applause. <laughs>